when the topic of purity comes up, our thoughts tend to focus on a culture that is rife with crude and lewd images and language. And we have seen that grow exponentially in the last uh, number of years. It's always been with us. Uh, Sin has always been with us and sinfulness. But the openness of it, I think, has become more certainly a more flagrant thing in our day. The arts are loaded with these things, and at a more base level, pornography has become ubiquitous. And ubiquitous just means it's ever-present. It's everywhere. It's, all, it's always available in a way that in just a few years ago, you would have had to go out of your way to access such things, uh, but now it is, it's at your fingertips all the time. And so there are all sorts of corrupting influences. And so our temptation is to think of these corrupting influences uh, and, and to ask about how can they be checked? How can we put a stop to them? How can we limit their influence? How can we avoid them or rid ourselves of them? And then, then if we can do that, we will have made great strides in guarding or maintaining our purity or the purity of our children. There is some truth in this. We do need to rid our cultures, including the cultures that are in our homes. Sometimes we think of culture as simply that which is out there. But you have a culture in your home as well, and that may be the most critical culture. Uh, How do we rid our cultures of all these gas cans out there that are waiting to feed these fires? Uh, but we should never forget where the fire is. It is not out there. It is in here. It is our own hearts that are the problem. Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 18 through 23, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and that would encompass all kinds of sexual sins, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. So let's begin with this simple fact. None of us are pure. No, not one. You're not pure. Your children are not pure. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life come from us. This means that only the genuine embracing of the redemptive gospel of Jesus Christ can rescue us. The problem is sin. And what we need is first forgiveness of our sins and then cleansing from our sins, purifying if you will. We need the work of God's word and spirit. And so if you or your children don't love the gospel of Christ, then purity is a hopeless proposition. When the prophet Isaiah had his vision of the Lord, 
he had the right response. When he saw the holiness of God, the purity of God, his response was, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Paul admonishes, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And so we are the primary purity problem. Understanding this is essential if we're going to have any hope of dealing with it. If we are to rid the world of if we were to rid the world of all the external expressions of immoral corruptions, we would still have to deal with our impure hearts. Now I've seen this false notion expressed sometimes in parents when one of their children sins and the parents blame the sin on the bad influence of some other child. Now, it's true that the world and the devil do bring external influences to feed our natural tendencies, and so we do need to be concerned about keeping such gasoline from the fires that burn in our hearts. But I wanted us to start with that foundational and important understanding that we're the problem. It's not out there. Out there's a different problem, but the primary problem is right here. Sometimes people will justify their sexual sins, and it's not uncommon to hear justification for sexual perversion and immorality on the basis of sexual orientation. I was born that way. I can't help it. Well, perhaps you were born that way, but you can be helped. You see, we were all born that way, some way, some perverted way, some twisted way, some impure way, and just because I have illegitimate desires does not make them doesn't all of a sudden make them legitimate just because I have them. We were all born impure, but we're called to overcome our sins in Christ. To give to give into the sin is also to receive the consequences of the sin. You can give in to it, but if you do, then you should expect the consequences of that. We never get away with giving in. Be sure, the Bible says, be sure, be positive, be confident <coughs> that your sins will find you out. You will reap what you sow. And so the devil operates a slaughterhouse. Proverbs 7, 21 and 22 Speaking of the seductress, uh, with her enticing speech, she causes him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Immediately he went in after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. And that's how the devil operates with our illegitimate sexual desires. It, is that there's this enticing to come in. You want it, uh, it makes you feel good, and so you begin to justify all the reasons why it's okay, and then the Scriptures, like it often does, gets, we get to see how the story ends. 
It's like an ox going to the slaughter. Now, at the heart of all sin, including sexual sin, is this, the desire to be as God, to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. God says no. We say yes. We want the forbidden fruit, but we don't want the consequences of the forbidden fruit. And so it's not uncommon for folks to contort or twist the Bible to say the opposite of what it says. It's amazing how everybody becomes a theologian. Now, they don't want to go sit down with uh, trained theologians and, and so forth, but, but they want to go and gather. Uh, a, there's a, a statement in the Westminster Confession about those who want to get divorces that they, uh, they accumulate for themselves arguments uh, to justify what they want to do. Well, the same thing is definitely true here. Um, and so, remember, the devil said to Eve, has God indeed said? You know, maybe you misunderstood what God said. Maybe if we had a little better exegesis of what he said, then it was, it's really okay for you to eat here. It's really not wrong. Peter warns this in 2 Peter 3.16. He warns of those, quote, untaught and unstable people who twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. That's a powerful statement. They twist the Bible to their own destruction. God says in, uh, in Isaiah, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put, dark for lightness, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. I've got the answers. I don't want to talk to anybody, don't need to talk to anybody. I've got it all figured out. At the heart of all sin is rebellion against the Creator's authority. That is, God is not going to tell me what to do. Now, when it comes to sexual impurity and perversion... And perversion just means to twist something, to take it from its normal state, to bend it and twist it and re try to reshape it into something else. This is, and so when it comes to these questions, this is the core of the problem. God might have made us male and female, but we don't want to be restricted by such limitations. God might have made man and woman to be one flesh as husband and wife, but we think that that is an unreasonable restriction. We don't like that rule. We want to do it our way. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we read this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Marquis de Sade, from whom we get the term sadistic or sadism, is a man who developed a philosophy that essentially said that if God said to do it, I want to do the opposite. He found pleasure, particularly sexual pleasure, in doing whatever God said not to do. And he gained pleasure from disobedience, which is a perversion of what God intended. So the pleasure 
the sexual pleasure he derived is partly enhanced by the fact that he's, he's being his own God and doing his own thing. And no one's telling him that there are limits. Now, let's, let's come back and kind of start tying some of these things together. I said the problem is in us. And so that begins with lust, and that's true for men and for women. Um, a, it, lust is a, either a legitimate thing uh, who's, that's desired in an illegitimate way. So a man for a woman or a woman for a man, for example. Is it appropriate for a man to desire a woman and a woman to desire a man? Yes. But if you do it in an inappropriate way, there's still additional limitations God places on that. And so when it becomes outside those bounds, it's become an illegitimate desire or lust. Wanting that which is not yours. Desiring which, that which is not yours. God hasn't given that to you. Now the question, you say, well, I don't like God telling me what I can and can't have. That, that, remember, that's the fundamental problem. I want what I want, and God's not going to tell me I can't want what I want. And God says, when you do that, when you desire what I've told you is not yours, you, you know, when you covet your neighbor's wife, when you covet your neighbor's property, that's not yours. You can't have that, and when you do, you are lusting, and that's one aspect. Or it is desiring an illegitimate thing, a man for a man or a woman for a woman, etc., those who deny God's right to define such things, such things as our sexuality, have replaced him with some other God. And as a result, the true God uh, gives them over to their false God. That's a, we'll see a little bit more about that in a moment, but professing to be wise, the Bible says they became fools. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God says, that's what you want, go for it. And then you're going to get the results of that. Back to Romans 1, 26 through 29. So, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. So what does that mean, nature? You know what? You don't have to be a genius to figure out that there's a difference between men and women. God made them different. They have different bodies, and they have different bodies for a reason. Maleness has certain qualities. Femaleness has certain qualities. And those qualities were God-given and God-made for a very distinct purpose, the natural use of a man and a woman when it comes to sexuality is obvious. I don't have to explain it to you, do I? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And in this case, God says they didn't like that. They wanted to do it another way. And so God, in effect, says, you want to do it another way? Go ahead. I'll give them over to their vile passions. That's what, how God describes this. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what was against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, in other words, they don't want God telling them what to do in this area, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality. That's a pretty clear, explicit declaration of what God thinks about this. Lust, which is sinful desire, like all sin, is deceitful. It lies to us. It makes promises it can't keep. It is a lie that promises a satisfaction that it cannot deliver. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Four Loves, says this, uh, we use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he, quote, wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. One does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. When we give in to lust, we always think that we're acting in our own self-interest. The reality is we're acting against our self-interest. The pursuit of purity is the true self-interest. I could give you a long list of those who gave in and who are filled with regrets. Some of you are sitting here, and you know it. A long list of people who gave in and are filled with regrets. Their lives would be very different now had they made better choices. Have you ever regretted doing the right thing? I haven't. Giving in to lust turns out not only to be wrong, it is also stupid. Romans 127, judgment like gravity is built into the moral law. You know, you say, well, I don't like gravity. Go for it. Step off the edge of the cliff. You break the law, built into that law is its own penalty, right? Romans 127, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. Every path leads somewhere, and we have the advantage of having been told, having been warned in God's Word as to where sexual sins lead. God's not trying to be mean to us. Remember, He created sex. He loves it. He, he, He gave it to us as a wonderful gift in a certain context. What He doesn't love is when we take His gift and abuse it and misuse it. Then destruction comes. Then harm comes. And he says, you, uh, he warned what will happen. You shall not commit adultery. And, of course, ideas have consequences, and so do our choices. There are, and there are some great contrasts in the Bible, and we always fall on one side or the other of these. Life and death, and sin and righteousness, and light and dark, and wise and foolish. And that's true when it comes to this particular area of our lives. Now, Shifting gears a little bit, I want to say something about the Internet as a portal of sin. Because one of the reasons that we have the problems we're having now in an exponential way, 
and I'm, I'm telling you, it is explosive right now. And, and the heartache and the destruction I see in lives and families is almost constant. Now that we've established sexual sins are really a matter of our own hearts, we can now turn and look at what is now feeding those lusts. What is the delivery system that is pouring gas on these fires? And so whatever the medium is, whatever the delivery system, be it conversation or books or magazines, movies, music, mobile phones, computers, etc., then we are going to have to exercise some discernment and some wisdom. Because something, just because something has a good use doesn't mean that sinful men can't find ten more bad uses for the same thing. And so we're not against the godly use of technology, which is man doing exactly what God called him to do, that is exercising dominion. We are against the sinful use of that same technology. If you have not, and this is really important, if you have not, if you cannot identify the dangers of something and guard against all those dangers, then you're not ready to use it. If you have not or cannot identify all the dangers of something and to guard against all those dangers, then you're not ready to use it at all. Neil Postman wrote in his book, Technopoly, he wrote that book before the Internet existed, he said, most people believe that technology is a staunch friend. There are two reasons for this. First, technology is a friend. It makes life easier, cleaner, and longer. Can anyone ask more of a friend? Second, because of its lengthy, intimate, and inevitable relationship with culture, Technology does not invite a close examination of its own consequences. It is the kind of friend that asks for trust and obedience, which most people are inclined to give because its gifts are truly bountiful. But, of course, there is a dark side to this friend. Its gifts are not without a heavy cost. Stated in the most dramatic terms, the accusation can be made that the uncontrolled growth of technology destroys the vital sources of our humanity. It creates a culture without a moral foundation. It undermines certain mental processes and social relations that make human life worth living. Technology, in sum, is both friend and enemy. And if we don't know where those enemy aspects are and where they exist we are in real danger. You have a moral atom bomb in your house and the remote control is in the hands of your children in many cases. Would you let your children play with an improvised explosive device? Many of us are. If I might change the metaphor... There is a black hole in your house, a portal of hell that goes both ways. And the devil has a wireless connection to you and your children. And he knows how to pour gas on the fires in their hearts. Just as the internet is a megaphone or magnifier of things like slander and gossip, 
so too it has the power to magnify and multiply sexual sins. This is of the utmost urgency for you and your family. I see the train wrecks constantly. There are some in the process of happening as we sit here now. Now, I'm not at liberty in this venue to describe to you what is readily available to your children and young people every minute of every day. We may, I think, probably schedule a Wednesday night for adults only and let the kids go out and play while we have a more frank discussion of this, just in case you're not aware. But let me remind you that they are being formed and shaped. Their sexuality is being formed and shaped. Therefore, their futures, both temporal and eternal, are at stake. You have been given the job to shape them and to make sure that no alien forces are allowed in. You are called to be firemen, to prevent fires and to put out fires. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes have teamed up and given us a flood of pornography. That seems to be the common theme in so many of these issues that I find myself dealing with. And there's a, long, a wide range of them. Pornography is a form of slavery and idolatry. And according to Hosea, all forms of idolatry are ultimately forms of slavery. They enslave us. They own us. They direct us. They control us. Thus we are no longer pure and holy it is a false God that promises but doesn't deliver, that frustrates and never satisfies, but always demands more and more sacrifice. As Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. The question is, who are you serving? Which God? This is an inescapable concept. Even for the true believer, even for the Christian, we can fall back into our idolatry just as Israel did. We are drawn in by our lust. And when we do that, when we have, at least for the moment, denied the true God, we are now taking orders from a false God. Proverbs 11:6: The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaith, unfaithful will be caught by their lusts. And in Romans 6, 12-14, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the curse of the law, but under grace. And so your children and young people are exposed constantly to the most graphic images imaginable and unimaginable. <clears throat> Unfortunately, some of the adults are exposed as well. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, a word about judgment on this. It's another area that's important in the area in this discussion of sexual sin. 
I think we allow ourselves sometimes certain liberties when it comes to impurity because we think these matters are private and somehow we have gotten away with it. Admiral Lord Nelson once remarked that every sailor is a bachelor when beyond Gibraltar. This was a statement about anonymity, something that was quite rare just a few generations ago. When I was uh, even 20 years ago or so, uh, if if you wanted to, uh, what we used to call, uh, see a a dirty movie, you had to go down to a a theater in a seedy part of town and stand outside and purchase a ticket and go in, and you didn't want to run the risk of being seen near that place. Uh, That's not true anymore, is it? It's at your house. It's on your cell phone and your iPad and your computer and your friend's phone and your friend's iPad and computer. So you have anonymity. Nelson knew that once his sailors moved beyond the bounds of the British Empire, beyond society's systems of morality and accountability, they underwent a transformation. Every man became a bachelor and sought only and always his own pleasure. Os Guinness, theologian, remarks that in the past, quote, those who did right and those who did not do wrong often acted as they did because they knew that they were seen by others. Their morality was accountability through visibility. Our society values anonymity. There are many who feel that anonymity is a right and one that is to be closely guarded and protected. Now, we might think that we're anonymous, but as the children's catechism teaches us, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Here is the only kind of nakedness that we should be concerned with. It's found in Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his open to the eyes of him whom we must to whom we must give an account. Now there's a nakedness you ought to be worried about. You can clear your internet history. But God has it all written down. It's easy to overlook God's judgment on sin. We tend to think of the more dramatic types of judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah or lightning falling out of the sky and striking someone, but judgment is often contained within the sin itself. It's subtle. We're often snared up in our own trap and we don't even know it. That's one of the insidious things about judgment Sin is deceitful and therefore we can be in the midst of being judged and never even know it. And we look up and we've done all kinds of damage. Damage to family, damage to friends, damage to the world, damage to ourselves. The fruit of sexual sins is having an effect on our marriages and families and the way we live and the way we have friendships and on what we don't do as well as what we do. There are always consequences when we choose to disobey God in our thought life and with our bodies. It's an illusion, part of the deception of sin that leads us to think that we're special, that we can somehow avoid judgment. But when it happens to others, we're not surprised, right? When somebody crashes and burns, the first thing we start trying to do is, how did that happen? 
How did he or she get in that situation? What, what led to that? And we recognize that there are answers to that. We may or may not get it right when we're analyzing someone else, but we recognize that there was a cause. We don't see that in us. In fact, we're very ready to want to connect the dots when we see certain judgment taking place in the lives of someone who, let's say, committed adultery or some other overt sin, and now they've been caught. We immediately recognize that there were other things that led up to that. There was a connection between the thought life and the actions of the person, and that this behavior didn't come out of nowhere. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a statement from someone in this situation say, you know, I didn't ever intend to get here. I didn't mean for this to happen. But you know you've got to mean for it not to happen, for it not to happen. It's not enough to just not mean for it to happen. You understand the difference? You see, somebody knocks the milk off the edge of the table. Uh, they didn't mean to knock it off. They weren't trying to knock it off, but the, it was sitting on the edge of the table, and, and they were flailing around. But so what do you need to do? Set your milk back further from the edge. You've got to mean not to knock it off. That's different. And so we want to flirt near the edge. Oh, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall as I inch my way further and further to the edge. And then I fall, and then the first thing I say is, I didn't mean to fall. And yet when it comes to ourselves, we're often very presumptuous, and we think we're special. And we think those things that they're doing that led to their demise won't happen to us. We're smarter than that. We can beat the system. But Romans 1, you can't beat. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. You see, judgment, you don't have control of that. God does. And at some point, he says, that's enough. And if you're a child of God whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he's not going to let you continue that way. And if you're not a child of God, this may be the means of exposing that, of saying, okay, you're open declaration that God's not going to tell me what to do, I'm going to do what I want to do, that may be the exposure of that, in which case God says, go for it. We're out of time this morning, but next week I want to begin to move towards some solutions. Again, we've just scraped the surface here, uh, given the nature of our gathering I've had to be very limited in what we're talking about, but I think most of you are getting the idea. This is urgent, critical. Uh, it's an understatement to say a lot is at stake. I should say everything is at stake. And so uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin to turn and look at, at what we need to be doing to guard ourselves, to guard our families, and to hopefully have an impact on the culture that brings some sanity back into the picture. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction and its warnings and its encouragement, its hope. And we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to think about these things deeply and to take them uh, seriously and to be in earnest about bringing all these matters uh, under your word. And we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, in our families and the ones we love. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us the wisdom and the grace to know how to 
understand and apply these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.